before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. I'm joined today by a dear, dear friend of mine, David Hay of Evergreen Gavcal in Bellevue, Washington. I've known Dave for more years than I care to count. Um, he's a fantastic guy. He's a dear, dear friend. Uh, he's a great investor. And he's uh, he's plenty experienced. We'll call him experienced. He will appreciate that. That is, of course, a euphemism, but uh, we won't go into what is the euphemism for. So I wanted to talk to Dave about the current market environment, the parallels with the 1970s. Uh, he was around then, has good memories of it. And just get his take on where we are in the cycle and what happens from here, because it just feels like we're at one of those turning points. The cross currents are getting so strong now that something's got to give. And uh, I thought David would be a fantastic guy to, to investigate that with. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with David Hay. David, my dear friend, it's so, so, so very good to see you. It's been way too long. Hi, G-Man. It has indeed. This yeah, it has. It has. It's. Uh, I was trying to think the last time I saw you, but it was. It was too far back, and I'm, I'm having a senior moment. So we'll just. We'll just. Uh, well, we'll just call it. We we'll zoom. call it far too long ago, and then we'll and we'll leave it at that. But uh, you, you are. are you, now, you, I presume you're in the desert now. This is true. You are in it's, the desert. Uh, it's going to be. It'll, it'll be a triple digit day today. Oh really? Oh boy. Okay. Well, yeah. We're there already. You know, here it's not bad. It's dry. It's. it's I'm not complaining. True, true, true. Well, listen. Um, what have you been up to lately? Anything fun? Anything interesting? I know on the work side that you've uh, you've had a few things going on. We'll get to those shortly. But what else have you been up to? Well, I'm up again. I'm walking again. That's the big news in my life because, as you know, I had a rather nasty fall right before Christmas on black ice and cement stairs. And yes. The black ice and cement stairs definitely won that battle. So I, I'll never take the simple activity of walking for granted again, Grant. Yeah. So that's, no, I'm a grateful guy. Hey, speaking of great, how's that, that great golf game of yours? Let's not talk about that, Dave. I don't really want to talk about <laughs> golf. It's, it's, okay. it's a very, very, very sore subject. Suffice <laughs> to say, if you uh, if you want to play anybody for money right now, it would be me. Trust me, you would you would be able to retire a rich man on what you take off me on the golf course. How, how soon can you get out of plane and get out here? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> exactly right. Okay, well, let's talk about another great. Let's talk about the podcast that you've been doing lately because those truly have been great. And I've listened to every single one of them. I may be the only guest that you've ever had who's listened to all your recent podcasts before coming on your show. You had Michael Oliver, Roy Johnston, yeah. right? Rick Rule, Trevor Hall. There's been some fabulous guys coming on. It's been it's been fantastic. I know Mike Rothman's a, a good buddy of yours. Um, it, it's been yes. it's been really interesting. And, that, and that, you know, frankly, I'm I'm delighted to get the chance to add you to that roster because you and I over the years have had. So many conversations um, in private, just the two of us, just sitting around talking about stuff, and and I've learned so much from you. And and you know, I had that one chance when we sat down for that Real Vision interview to to give people a chance to kind of hear you talk at length, even though you had that shocking uh, speech <laughs> problem after getting a cold, and you you manfully <laughs> did the interview anyway. So I still thank you for that. But that's um, when I sounded like Kermit the Frog. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. But I actually wanted to talk about that because it's interesting that there's some real parallels happening today with that that uh, great video that you did back then. So maybe we we'll come back to that because that's worthy discussion. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. So um, look, let me let me something I want to ask you about. Um, and you and I have spoken. Well, about don't this. forget to ask me about Saturday night. 
what I did Saturday night. Oh, yeah. You did tell me to ask you that, didn't you? You didn't want to preempt it. What did you do Saturday night? Oh, it was no big deal. Howard Marks invited me over to his Beverly Hills mansion to meet Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin. So you could say it was Manchin at the mansion. All right. And, you know, the, the, they quip in Washington these days that Joe Biden is the second most powerful Joe in D.C. And actually, there's quite a bit of truth to that. So I know politics is always dangerous to talk about, but this is, I think, safe ground because it involves the organization that Howard Marks co-founded back in 2010. A lot of people are not aware of that. Even Ben Hunt didn't know that. It's called No Labels. So it's a bipartisan political entity, and their congressional offshoot is the Problem Solvers Caucus. They have 29 Democrats and 29 Republicans, so it truly is bipartisan. And Joe uh, Manchin is in the Senate, of course, but he's, uh, along with about 10 other senators, is very closely involved in the organization. And it's important because if you think about it, Grant, I mean, they these are the guys that literally single-handedly, or maybe with just a few hands, stopped the Build Back Better, you know, that $6 trillion Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. Legislation that was going to go through, and then it got cut down to three trillion. And Manchin said, "We're not even doing that." And if you think about it, imagine the inflation problem we would have today if that thing had gone through. And they were trying to introduce that when the economy was already hyper stimulated. So, you know, thankfully Joe Manchin is is group uh, stuck up for the country. And so, anyway, it was an amazing experience uh, getting to meet. It was a private group. Got to talk one on one with Howard Marks and Manchin and. You know, you and I are newsletter writers, so Howard Marks' newsletter is is legendary. Yeah, you probably heard the story that that supposedly when Howard's newsletter gets on Warren Buffett's desk, Buffett the Oracle stops everything to read to Howard Marks' newsletter. It's it's that good, and so it was just a great honor for me to be able to meet him. Yeah, no, anyway, I, so that, that was I, my Saturday I, night. Well, I, I had the chance to meet and interview Howard um, a few years ago now, and uh, he was just fantastic. I mean, so smart. It was. Uh, it was tough to keep up with him, frankly, but um, but he was yeah, he was also very generous with his time, and and um, you know I, I really really enjoyed talking to him and uh, learned an awful lot. And, and as you say, I mean his his letters for anybody out there who doesn't get the Oak Tree Insights, um, they're free, and you should absolutely sign up for them at the Oak Tree website because they they're published on an ad hoc basis. But boy, are they great reading whenever they come out. Um, but listen, Dave, um, let's. Uh, Let's talk about the world. You know, there there is so much going on right now. It really is just a, a, a fascinating time to be alive. And I want to start. Do you think there's stuff there's stuff to talk about? Everything's so boring well, right now. Well, we we always find something to talk about. You and I. But I want to start with inflation because I think it's the big variable. It's the big story. It's the big change that we have now. All the other stuff we can talk about. Rate hikes, non-rate hikes. We can talk about guidance. We can talk about hawkish times. All that stuff has happened over and over again for the last 20 years. The one variable this time that we haven't had before is inflation. So um, let's start off with that. Talk a little bit about how you see the inflationary environment right now. And perhaps you could touch on your experiences uh, with uh, the last kind of similar bout of inflation we, we went through. Well, first of all, I'm old enough to remember the 70s. I know you which, are. You know, there, there's not too many people managing money today. That, uh, and I do manage money. That's and that's another thing that's a little bit, I think, unique for some of your guests, most of your guests. But I was an investor in the uh, in the 70s, and uh, I vividly remember what that was like. And that's why when I hear people say that, you know, Jay Powell is no Arthur Burns, I think absolutely is not Arthur Burns. He's way worse because Arthur Burns in the 1970s never let inflation get out of control to the degree that, that Jay Powell has. And in 1974, Arthur Burns got interest rates to 10% when inflation was running at 10% with an energy crisis you know, like we have now. And here we have inflation running at eight. 
And we've got the Fed funds rate, you know, getting up close to one. So still fantastically below, ridiculously below. So you're, you know, I think you're aware of the evolution that I've had in terms of inflation that my career actually started in the financial industry in 1979. And somewhere around 1981, 1982, I came to believe that Volcker meant business and that he was actually going to get inflation under control. So basically from 1982 until 2020, uh, post-COVID, I was pretty much always a bond market bull and a believer of disinflation. But based on what they did in the, in the COVID response, which in my mind was absolutely MMT, full bore modern monetary theory that Stephanie Kelton wanted to do so much, that as a result, inflation... Uh, you know, I changed my attitude completely. I believe that we were going to get a lot of inflation. And it wasn't just me. You had actually Howard Marks saying at the same time that we were doing MMT. Uh, Jeremy Siegel was very adamant that uh, the money supply growth at that time that was running at something like 40% was going to lead to high inflation. And yet, as we know, uh, Jay Powell and the Fed were in denial virtually all of last year. One of the most amazing factoids is that the Fed balance sheet, which started before the financial crisis, it was $700 billion. Last September, September 30th, it was 8.5 trillion. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of March, it was 9 trillion. So just think about that. They printed or fabricated is a better term, another $500 billion into the teeth of one of the greatest inflation accelerations of all time. Sheer madness. So that's that's been a huge factor. But I think another factor behind inflation and why I'm really thinking it's much more durable. And I'm not going to, I'm certainly not going to sit here and say to you that. I think inflation is going to keep running eight to nine percent. I think it, it will. Even in the 1970s, there were times where it would dip. Probably you know, at the time, it was mostly because of recession, and perhaps that's what will be again. We'll, mm-hmm. you know, in a recession, it will fall down. But I think four percent is going to be low, even in a recession. And, and part of my belief in that is what I've been long calling and writing about: greenflation. The idea that this green energy transition is inherently inflationary. Because for the first time in human history, we're going from a more efficient form of energy to a less efficient form of energy. And that in itself is inflationary. And we're seeing that play out graphically in Europe. And actually, it became apparent last fall. So I actually pulled forward one of the chapters of my book uh, to last October, ran up my newsletter on this topic of green inflation. And that's before Putin's tanks obviously invaded. Uh, and you know, at that time, you had natural gas prices in the UK and your country that were five to six times what they were in the United States. So it's and it, a big reason for that, as you know, is that European energy production over the last 20 years has fallen drastically and their reliance on Russian oil and gas has increased basically an equivalent amount. Yeah. Whereas, of course, in the United States, we had this immense, miraculous uh, shale revolution where our production of oil went from four to five million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day at the peak. Nobody thought that could happen. Same thing happened with natural gas. We're now the largest LNG exporter in the world. And it's that US LNG, frankly, that's saving Europe's butt right now. But yeah, it's a it's a very different situation than we've had for the last 20 years. I think inflation is going to run hot. Uh, my belief is this decade is going to look a lot more like the 1970s uh, and a lot less like uh, you know the last 40 years. And I think that has enormous investment implications. You and I have mutual friends like Dave Rosenberg, for whom we both have a tremendous amount of respect. Correct. And, you know, you read Rosie as diligently as I do. And and whenever I read Rosie, it makes me question my assumptions. How, how, what do you think about when you read Rosie's stuff about how he still believes that deflation is the problem? How do you kind of put that up against your own theory and what conclusions have you come to? 
Well, I don't think he's paying nearly enough attention to greenflation, for one thing. And I, I don't understand how he did not connect the dots on MMT. But he was not alone. No. Uh, a lot of people felt that it wouldn't be inflationary. Now, I think that what they look at, and I would put Lacey Hunt in that category, is they look at a very true statistic, which is that government debt has a negative multiplier effect. So that as you put more and more debt on, you're getting, you know, you're not getting one for one. Or in the old days, back in the 1950s, uh, it was actually a positive multiplier, probably because we were building out the interstate highway system at the time, which had tremendous productivity productivity benefits. But today, this all this government debt is, you could argue it's actually hurting economic growth. But you can still get a lot of nominal inflation. So I think part of it is in reconciling, you know, why do these bright people have such different views? Is the difference between nominal growth and real growth? I think that a lot of these policies are not producing real growth, but they're producing quite a bit of nominal growth. And frankly, I think that's what the government wants to have happen. I mean, as my friend and partner Louis Gaw would say, this inflation isn't a bug; it's a feature. It's what yeah. they want. And you know, you look at the deleveraging that's gone on over the last year, and I think you even ran this in one of your newsletters recently, it's come down. So the US government debt to GDP was 136% coming out of COVID. It's down to about 123% of debt to GDP. It's how we did it after World War II. I mean, we had, I think coming out of World War II is about 115% debt to GDP. By 1952, it had gotten down to around 70% debt to GDP. And that was because of inflation, largely. We had some very high inflation numbers after World War II, which most people yeah. are not aware of. I think there's reasons to, to believe what they believe, but, uh, and I, I do think that they, I mean, he's certainly very adamant that we're going to have a recession soon. And maybe he's right about that. I mean, there is definitely we'll talk about that perhaps later. I don't know if we'll talk about it now, but I'm, I'm seeing some, I think this is the most cross current, uh, most cross current yeah. economic situation I've seen really ever. I mean, you see yeah, the I mean, front look, page of the Wall Street Journal today. But, but I mean, Dave, that, you, know, you, you look at this, you look at this, um, this GDP print. I mean, who would have thought we'd see a GDP print like that the same week that the Fed would raise rates 50 basis points, for example? I mean, it's just, as you say, there are so many cross-currents, but which is why I keep coming back to this inflationary problem. It's the one thing that has been absent through all the pivots and the U-turns and the Goldilocks scenarios and the soft landings and all the other things that have been promised and in some cases, in fairness, delivered. We haven't had any of it happen against the backdrop of meaningful and sticky inflation. And so going back to the 70s and the early 80s, talk a little bit about the mindset component of this, because th this is the piece that I think people struggle to understand. You know, I'm, I'm seeing signs of it on an anecdotal basis in my normal life. I've told the story recently about a trip to the to the car dealership that I, that I made just out of curiosity, just to kind of have what the Australians call a sticky beak at, at a new car, and to find out that you know, the $52,000 car had a $20,000 limited availability surcharge slapped on it. Um, Only 40%. It, yeah, and, and the effects that that was having on the salesmen who were all sitting outside the dealership playing dice. I mean, they had no customers coming in. They had no, you know, and these are guys working off commission who have seen probably 70% of their income go away. And so, right. you know, that, that mindset component to inflation, talk, talk a little bit about that from back in the day and how, how you view that as a, as, a, as a part of the puzzle. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think we're seeing, you know, back to the 70s kind of uh, environment unfolding. And just one example, I was talking to a good friend and client yesterday. He was talking about, well, this building that we're building in the Seattle area, he goes, you know, it's going to be delayed because the cement workers went on strike. And I said, Ed, when's the last time you right. heard of a strike, you know, anywhere in Seattle? And now I guess New York uh, doormen are going on strikes and, 
you know, Amazon's, you're seeing unionization efforts there in Starbucks. And I do think that we are having a sea change underway that, again, is, is back to the 1970s with much more militant labor, much more power shifting to labor, and that the we are seeing the beginning of a wage price spiral, which, you know, people like David Rosenberg said, don't worry, that's not going to happen. It's, it's happening. And I think once people's expectations get, can I think we're, this is where you're headed, when you develop an inflationary mindset, then it can really feed on itself. And, and people start looking at, at cash as trash, as U.S. dollars, as your friend Simon Mikhailovich calls them, candy wrappers. You know, do I really want to hold U.S. dollars? Which, you know, I will say, you know, I want to be always very candid about my good calls and bad calls. And one of my worst calls of the last couple of years was on the U.S. dollar. I thought the U.S. dollar would would be generally weak. And I still think that's going to be the case. But while I've been very right about inflation and very right about interest rates and very right about energy, I've been very wrong about the US dollar. In fact, I think Michael Cow was saying that uh, it's a wrecking ball. Didn't he say that yeah. on your podcast? Yeah. yeah, he did. And it's true. It's just, it's like, you know, it's, it's smashing into everything, almost every form of every major asset class and, and wreaking havoc. And that's very different than the 1970s because the 1970s was a time when the dollar was generally quite weak. Uh, and then we got, of course, the Reagan dollar in the 1980s. But uh, it's it's amazing to me. Of course, we're comparing against things like the DXY. Michael Oliver on one of your podcasts said that you know, the DXY is basically the yen and the and the euro. Euro, yeah. And that's true. So it's not really the best measure. I think a much better, better measure is to look at a gold. And as he pointed out, the dollar has basically gone sideways since 2015, maybe up a little bit. In that time, gold is up something like 80%. So it's you know I think it's important to have the right measure on is is the dollar really holding its uh, purchasing power and I don't think it is. When you, when you talk about currencies, obviously the big move and again there there are so many things happening when you talk about that stuff with the dollar and you talk about the difference between the seventies when the dollar was weak and for me the reason the dollar is strong is all these again these chickens coming home to roost the the amount of short dollars that have built up with all the, the dollar financing that's been done over the last 10 years because it's been encouraged to, to happen that way. The other thing that's in the currency world that's taken a lot of people by surprise is the yen. You know, we've we've seen Japan and the BOJ have their cake and eat it. They've been able to control the 10-year yield and have a reasonably strong currency. And it was long my contention and Flex contention as we've done the Endgame podcast series that at some point that vulnerability will be exposed. And what we're seeing now with the yen move alongside this unlimited pledge to to stand at the yield curve and bid for 10 years, it finally seems as though the markets are waking up to this idea that the central banks aren't as powerful as they think they are, and that now might be a time to test them. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, this is this has been a remarkable development in the yen. And in fact, I sent you the chart showing that 115 roughly was a major support level for this, the yen. It broke through there and then just blew all the way out to 130, which sounds like it's going up. But as you know, that means it's going down. It takes more yen to buy one dollar is what that's indicating. And yeah, I think it's it's exposing the, you know this this truism that a central bank can control its interest rates or it can control its currency, but it really can't control both. So obviously they're they're, they're choosing to maintain the low interest rates. Uh, and let the uh, currency be the sacrificial lamb. And I think at some point they're going to decide it's too much of a sacrifice and that they're going to have to let interest rates rise like the rest of the world is doing. And frankly, I think that's a good thing. I think capitalism and economies don't work well when you're down around zero or even, you know, God forbid, these crazy negative yields. 
it, it just distorts things. It creates asset bubbles. It diverts money from capital from productive pursuits into you know bidding up housing prices and other assets. And it's just a, the whole paradigm is is has failed. And I think that failure is becoming more evident with every passing day. But I think it's going to take a real vicious bear market in the U.S. stocks to to really expose, you know, what a charade this whole thing has been. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, the U.S. markets, because you and I are recording this the day after Jay Powell's latest press conference and the latest move by the Fed. Uh, talk a little bit about what you saw yesterday and how you interpreted both what Jay Powell had to say and also the market's reaction to it yesterday rather than today. We'll come on to today in a, in a short while. Well, I don't know if you can hear me chuckling, because when you say <laughs> yesterday, you, and I know you have better things to do than watch Jim Cramer. But this is one of the most hysterical examples that he's ever, ever exuded. And, uh, you know, oh, that's boy. a lot to choose from because so huge rally yesterday because Steve Leesman asked uh, Jay Powell a question about the 75 basis points. He says that's not on the table. So stock market takes off to up 900 points. Jim Cramer goes on after the market and absolutely rips apart anybody that's got concerns about the environment that we're in. I mean, he lists like five or six things and that high pitched voice of his, why these worry words are wrong. And this is, this just shows how good the market is. And, you know, he also said back in uh, mid-March that the bear market was over just defiantly, just ab- emphatically yeah. the bear market's over. And obviously at that point, the only market that had been in a bear market was tech and I think he was implicitly saying that's what most people care about these days. And I think he's right about that. Well, you know, what's the what's the NASDAQ down now today? About 5%, close to it. So it's not only reversed what it went up yesterday, it's taken away more than that. So very clearly the NASDAQ is in a bear market. And I think what's also fascinating to look at is what's going on with the 10-year treasury, because it's breaking above 3%. And that's a that's a very important level. So maybe this is a good time to talk about. What I, you know, I like to be very candid about my screw ups. And one of my worst was uh, the stock market in 2013, because I have developed this, this approach, which I really very rarely hear about, even from your bright guests. Uh, the, the one guy who has talked about this a fair amount is Paul Tudor Jones, and he calls them range expansions. And that chart of the yen that I sent you was a classic example. But if you were to look back at a chart of the S&P from 2000, basically the peak of the tech bubble, to 2013, it went nowhere for 13 years. It was in a range. And then it decisively broke that range on the upside in 2013. And at that point, I was somewhat bearish on the market. It, we'd done really good, come really well for our clients coming out of the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, we made a lot of money. And I thought this market looks really expensive. It was, it was very, I mean, there were a lot of bright people at that point saying this market's overpriced. But that breakout combined with all the fake money the Fed was creating, you know, you should have at least been, you know, equal weight equities at that point, not underweight, which we were. My my fault, my bad. And we did have some opportunities, as you know, in 2015 and 2016, and then 2018, and of course the COVID crash 2020. And we did capitalize on all those pretty well, especially the COVID crash. But I mean, that was really dumb on my part, frankly, to miss that uh, bullish signal. But uh, fortunately, on a happier note, same thing happened with Microsoft and. Fascinating to look at a chart of Microsoft. Do you know, Grant, that in 2013, Microsoft was trading at 10 times earnings? I, I do know that. I do know that because- uh, Not many some. people do. <laughs> and it had gone nowhere, just like the market for 13 it went years. Nowhere. Yep. So the PE came from 80 down to 10 because their earnings kept growing. And it was a value, it was a classic value trap for most of that 13-year period. But 
In 2013, ironically, same time as the S&P, it broke out explosively and with great fundamentals to support it. And, you know, those are the kind of things that you look for. And I'm just amazed that so few people in our industry don't track these things. They don't look for, you know, what's breaking out. And I think maybe part of it is because they look at too short term a time frame. What we've learned is it has to really be a multi-year trading band that's violated either up or down. And just look at the Chinese market lately, FXI. You know, this is their blue chip index. It had a major breakdown earlier this year at yeah. about 38. And it's it's down 7% today alone. It's it's under 30. And it's down about 30% in, in just a few months after that uh, great warning signal from breaking critical support. Same thing happened with MLPs back in 2020 as COVID was starting to go viral, literally. And that really did save our bacon. Uh, we, and here's an important part, because if you if you react to those and you get defensive, even if you like something and say, I like it, but it's this this isn't good. This is a you know major breakdown. When it gets crushed, as it almost always does, then you're in a position where you can buy it and buy it aggressively, which is what we did with MLPs in the spring of 2020. And they have just crushed it since then. So it's very important. But uh, you know, as far as the treasury, I mean, some people have said that chart of the treasury yield is the most important one in the world. I'm sure you've heard that because they draw the trend line and it looks like that trend line is being violated to the upside yeah. uh, already. Now, the way we look at it, the critical level is three and a quarter because if it goes above three and a quarter, then that's almost a 10 year breaking, almost a 10 year uh, trading band. But that's, and that's really an issue to be laser focused on right now. How are you managing this right now? We've talked about cross currents. We've talked about what a tricky environment it is. To invest in, you know, for, for traders, it's kind of manner from heaven, these kind of environments. They give you plenty of entry and exit points. But you guys aren't traders. So how how do you manage these cross currents, particularly with this inflationary backdrop that kind of sits quietly beneath the water and you know is there as a threat you have to manage? No matter what the markets do, you are going to have to manage this inflation threat. Absolutely. I mean, you could say, well, let's just sit in cash. But, you know, that used to be a fairly viable strategy. But if you sit in cash and you sit in cash for a couple of years with inflation at 8%, you've lost a lot of money. So that's not really a great way to play it either. Uh, I mean, I do think there's a bit of a layup that you can simply go out with a you know a two-year, one to two-year treasury ladder portfolio and, and get two and a half percent. That's a heck of a lot better than sitting in cash, but it's still a loser to inflation. So it's not perfect. There aren't really great options out there right now. I think one of the, the things we've done is that we have this core belief that inflation is going to be with us for years. Therefore, when you get these shakeouts in uh, the hard assets, which have happened multiple times. So when, when Delta went viral, when Omicron went Delta, you know, basically the hard asset complex got pounded. And so you have those buying opportunities. It, it, same thing happened with cold stocks. Then you get these powerful rallies. And as you know, GDX got up to 40 here uh, last week and Newmont went to an all-time new high over 80. And we did some serious profit taking. Even though we like gold long-term, we did a tremendous amount of profit-taking on the gold miners back in 2020. You, you actually got me to buy the GDXJ at almost the very COVID bottom. We made a killing on that one, thanks to you. Uh, so my point is, yes, I think you'd have to be, even if you're a longer-term investor, I think you have to be price-sensitive and willing to take gains when these things get popular and run up because it, the markets are so incredibly volatile. And people are, I think there's millions of investors who are trying to figure out how do I deploy my capital now? I think they're kind of gradually coming to the realization, which I think is a critical one, that what's worked for the last 40 years is not going to work for this decade. And I think that's where people, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, the Murray Stahl thing, that if people are, if you're indexed, I think I mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to mention it now for sure. 
that so much of the world is indexed. And if you think about it, Grant, that there's so little hard asset exposure like energy in the indexes anymore. So that means most investors are not exposed to where they need to have participation. And I think that's going to be a huge problem. So I think we're, we've been early in recognizing the shift. You know, I've talked and written a lot about the great rotation uh, because I remember vividly what happened in 2000 to 2002. I mean, the tech stocks went down, the NASDAQ went down almost 80%. But if you were in value stocks during that period of time, you did just fine. And I think we're in a period like that. And we're already seeing that kind of rotation play out. But to your point, you do get these things like if there's a recession, value stocks tend to get hit during a recession because they are somewhat economically sensitive for the most part. However, we had a recession in 2000 to 2002 and value still outperformed growth drastically. So I think that, I mean, that's probably been, it's like waiting for interest rates to go up in Japan, waiting for value to outperform. It's been so frustrating for people to actually, you know, believe valuations do matter. But I think that game has changed. That's changed in favor of the value guys who've been suffering for so long. The idea of change, that idea of uh, the reaction functions of asset prices to economic inputs, we, we seem to be at a point, you know, for the longest time now, we've, we've, we've been scratching our heads that nothing's really reacted in the way that one would expect it to. If you look at patterns throughout history, you look at previous similar uh, analogs, and we haven't seen the same reaction out of asset classes that one would expect. But it feels now that we're getting what seem to be unexpected reactions. However, if you kind of ignore the last 20 years, the, the reactions we're getting to announcements now and to economic data seem to be correct. And I, and I put that in inverted commas. Um, all, I, all I mean by that is that they're the reactions that one would have expected before the kind of era of central bank interference. Are we back at a time where one can rely on classical economic training to kind of figure out what's going to happen? Well, I hope so. I mean, I think what's been the problem with using those kind of uh, indicators in the past has been that everything has been kind of overwhelmed by the tsunami of money from the Fed and the other central banks. So really, that's kind of all you needed to know. And, and maybe, you know, the, the kind of technical analysis that I mentioned, paying attention to breakouts and breakdowns. But yes, I think we're getting to a, a period where thinking and, and doing actual research, which hardly anybody does anymore, uh, because so much of the world is either de facto indexed or, or kind of uh, stealth indexed, I think it's going to be a huge advantage. And there aren't many of us left. I mean, most of our peers don't do research. They don't have a big research team. It's expensive. You got to have talented people. And so it's, uh, I, I really believe we're going into a period where thinking is going to be highly rewarded. Uh, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? What do you think uh, the status of the Fed put is now, David? Because again, this is this has been something that's underpinned these markets for such a long time now, and it feels like it, if it is there, as as I think Michael Cow said on that, on that podcast, it's been restruck as a, a decent amount lower. Well, I'm so glad you asked, and I totally agree with that. In fact, I, my little pun on it is is the Fed put kaput, and there is a belief that it is, and I don't think it is. I agree with Michael. I think it's out there. I just think that the activation point has been lowered. And it's actually one of the main things I wanted to talk about because I, I have a fairly radical comment to make in this regard, and that I'm convinced that if the S&P is down 30% or more, I think it's literally going to take that kind of decline to get the Fed to do what I'm just about to describe. I believe at that point, the Fed will buy stocks. And if that sounds outrageous, remember, Grant, you're, you have a good memory. In fact, you have a photographic memory. I'm jealous. Uh, that I was saying that back in 2017, 2018, I even spoke on that at the Malden 
SIC Strategic Investment Conference, I think that was in 2018, and I said, in the next crisis, I really think the Fed will buy corporate bonds. And people say, you're crazy. They can't do that. It's illegal. And I said, oh, yeah, don't worry. They'll figure out a way to do it. Recently, I stumbled on a speech. I didn't know this at the time, that back in 2016, Janet Yellen herself, who at that time was Fed chairman, uh, chairwoman, had, she said, uh, in the next crisis, the Fed will potentially buy corporate bonds and stocks. She said it in a speech. And they've already done the first part of it. So doing the second part isn't really that much of a stretch. And I think in that regard, the Fed has a real ace up their sleeves. And that is, you may not know that in their $9 trillion portfolio, $1 trillion of that is T-bills. So they're going to have a trillion dollars running off this year, roughly $250 billion a quarter. So if they need to buy stocks, I'll say come September, if things are really, really ugly, they can just say, hey, we're not going to, we realize that we create a lot of inflation by doing that, that QE stuff and MMT, but we're just going to do a portfolio rebalancing. We're just going to take some of this maturing T-bill flow and we're going to put it into common stocks because we think they're great values. And you know, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority did that during the Asian crisis and they made a killing they did, for right. Hong Kong citizens. So it's, and, you know, Bank of Japan owns common stocks, the Swiss National Bank owns common stocks. So it's not, I don't think it's a stretch, even though, again, most people think I'm nuts to be saying this. And I think it will trigger a massive rally at that point. Uh, but it, you can say, well, it's still the smoke and mirrors. It's not real. It's, but it's, I think that's one of their better approaches. And I actually believe, if you look back at what they did with corporate bonds in 2020 during COVID, they bought very few. I think they bought a total of $18 billion. Now, you put that up against the trillions and trillions and trillions that they did to buy government debt. I mean, they missed a huge opportunity, frankly, as you know, this has been one of my pet peeves in 0809 when they created that first QE1 of a trillion dollars. Wasn't that that was such a bad idea, but, but instead of buying corporate debt, corporate debt in 2008, 2009 was priced like it was in 1932. I mean, high yield bonds were yielding 23%. You had AAA rated mortgages that were under the worst scenario worth 90 cents on the dollar trading for 40 to 50 cents on the dollar. That's what they needed to buy. Instead, they bought the most overpriced asset on the planet, which was treasuries at the time. So they could have they could have prevented all these years of fake money if they'd gone to the right place. And, and that's the lesson they learned in March of 2020, or at least they applied it to them. So that's a forecast you're probably not going to hear from too many other people. No, no, no. I, no I, 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 I did see that, um, that Yellen speech. And the same thing for me. I, I filed that way. And, and to me, it's a done deal. At some point, they'll buy stocks. Because as you say, there's plenty of precedent out there. And there will come a time when there's really nothing else they can do. But is that what it may take to stop the dollar from its rise? I mean, what do you think it will be that they will finally do that will cause people to lose faith in the currency? Well, I think that will bring the dollar down. I think what is also going to do it is that I believe that Ben Hunt is right. What he wrote here recently, what is it, NMGI, never going to make it in GMI? I don't think they're going to make it. I don't think they're going to be able to do even what Arthur Burns did by getting the Fed funds rate up close to inflation. And I think once that realization sinks in, the dollar is going to get slammed. So there's something you've been writing about for quite some time now, this idea of the great rotation. You know, it's something that we've heard that there's a great everything. We've had great recessions and we've had, you know, the great <laughs> retirement and we've had all this all this stuff going on. But the great rotation, you've been writing about it as long as anybody. So to talk a little bit about your thoughts on that. I mean, talk about what you think it is, and then where we are in that process. Well, as we know, growth has been kicking values butt for close to 20 years until recently. And you know, they just can't keep going on. That's just the reality is these things go through 
long periods of value outperforming and then growth outperforms and they go back and forth. And so we're due for a major reversion to the mean. And I think we're seeing some of the, the precipitating factors fall into place. And higher inflation is a classic example of that. I mean, value stocks can do quite well with higher inflation. Growth stocks, no. And the proof of that is look back to the 1970s, which I, again, I vividly remember. And if you were in the right stocks, if you were in energy stocks, if you were in gold miners, if you were in copper producers, lumen producers, if you were in the Swiss franc, you did just great through the 1970s. But of course, most people weren't. I mean, there had there was a very similar, not as extreme bubble. Remember the Nifty 50? The Nifty 50s was the early 1970s. And what, of course, triggered the inflation in the 1970s was not only oil, there were two oil crises, but also Nixon took us off the dollar in 1971. And so if you were an investor who wasn't looking back at the last 20 years where U.S. growth stocks had done so well, say, hey, look, this is a new environment. I need to reposition my portfolio. I can guarantee you very few people did that at that point. And I think we're in exactly the kind of that same kind of situation again. The world has changed and most investors are investing based on uh, the 19. 80 to 19 uh, to 2020 paradigm is still continuing. Well, this, you know, this is something I've I've long thought about and talked about is this idea that if if we have moved from a period of deflation where we've, we've just had this deflationary tailwind, as you say, for four decades now, if we move into a period of genuine inflation, it reverses everything, right? Everything that worked doesn't Absolutely. work anymore. It, it just doesn't work. It's it's that simple. And this this growth over value story is one of the key ones. I mean, I, um, I I was reading Michael Lewitt's note he put out recently, showing just how severe the carnage was in the tech sector. You know, you, you tend to get this idea that when when the Nasdaq kind of struggles, you get all these crazy company names that are down 75, 80%, you know, these little tech names that you've never heard of that did all these kind of weird and wonderful things. But if you look through the list of the performers on the Nasdaq, the stocks that are down 85, 80, 75, 70, 65%, 60% are huge names. You know, all the COVID trades, all the Pelotons, the Zooms, the Rockus, all these Spotify, companies, Shopify, Spotify, all, all of them, right? All, these yep. are huge names that, that have a, a tremendous place in kind of the investment universe. There are an awful lot of people invested in those names. And the carnage that's been done to that, and I think it's 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 been pretty simple to substitute the word tech for growth in the last couple of years, particularly. The carnage that's been done there, I mean, is extraordinary. It doesn't feel to me as though that's been kind of felt in the broader market yet. Well, I think you're right. And that's where I think that the analogy of 2000, 2002 comes into to play, because in 2000, it was kind of the same thing. You had a lot of the same kind of stocks getting absolutely nuked. And yet the S&P was doing okay. S&P made a slight new high in the fall of uh, 2000. I don't know if it's going to be able to pull that off this time, but uh, there really was at that point just kind of the pet pet.coms and those types of names that were getting destroyed. Just as a little footnote, even Amazon went down 95% during right, that yeah. tech bear market. Yeah. But uh, what I'd, I think this is a good segue into remember that piece that I wrote, uh, Take Profits? It was one of my yeah, newsletters. I remember, early two, I remember the blowback. Early 2000. Yeah, exactly. That's that's where I was going with it was the blowback. And you were kind enough to come into my defense. But uh, I had to write a follow-up to it to really clarify the next week to say, look, I'm really talking about what I referred to as the cops, the crazy overpriced stocks, which are exactly the kinds of names that you're talking about, you know, that were trading at 30 times sales or, you know, hundreds, you know, 200, 300 PEs if they had any E. And, and those were the kind of stocks that I thought were just absolutely outrageous. And 
because I, a few weeks before I said take profits, I'd also written one of my favorites, which was totally toxic, talking about how out of favor energy was and that it was basically like the tobacco stocks had been 20 years earlier. And the point I made was that if you'd bought Philip Morris in 2000, you crushed the stock market over the next 20 years. And you know, tobacco stocks actually kill people, whereas energy is, as we're now seeing, is absolutely essential. And so to, to treat them as uninvestable, which is what most people were saying, you know, Jim Cramer was the, the leading, I mean, just constantly shouting, energy's uninvestable, don't go near her. You know, and they were at absolute fire sale giveaway prices. So that, of course, uh, the price of oil went briefly negative in, in the spring of 2020. And so my point is that I was really bullish on certain parts of the market back in the end of 2020, early 2021. But when it came to the cops, the kinds of names you're referring to, it was just, I really think it was peak insanity. I think peak insanity was probably around February of last year. And that's when the Kathy Woods arc hit its high and it's down, you know, it's just like you're saying, it's down 70%. A diversified fund is down 70% because it's loaded with what I would have called the crazy overpriced stocks. I'll tell you another thing that worries me about the current market situation is if you look at retail inflows into the market last year and into this year have been like record breaking. And to put a fact around that, the inflows year to date still, even though there's now turning to outflows, has been bigger than the entire 1996 to 2020 period. So from 96 to 2020, there really weren't very many inflows into the market. So it's not, maybe that's not the fairest test, but the reality is that certainly lately, the retail investor has been flooding into stocks. And as the legendary Bob Farrell said, that retail is famous for buying the most at tops and the least at bottoms. The other thing that's consistent with this is what companies are doing. So companies, as you're aware, but I think a lot of the listeners are not, have been extremely aggressive buyers of their own stock, and they're also terrible market timers. I guarantee you that if sometime in the next couple of years, there's going to be a bunch of these companies that were buying their own shares back, they're going to be selling stock at much lower prices to recapitalize their balance sheet. That's a pattern that just happens cycle after cycle. So those two things are very concerning to me right now about the market. Dave, you talked about energy there, and you talked about it being quite unquote uninvestable. I, mean, you know, I know that the energy sector is somewhere you've actually spent an awful lot of time looking at. So, so now it's become such a it's become such a hot place to be. Talk a little bit about your experience investing in energy over the last you know six seven years because it's, it was a very different world. And, and give us a sense of where it's come from and, and where it is now, where you expect it to go. Because there are a lot more pairs of eyes on this thing now. Well, let's be honest; it was a disaster. I mean, two terrible bucks. One was yeah. more of an oversupply situation that happened in 2015 and 16, actually began in 2014. And then, of course, COVID, which absolutely destroyed demand for a while. Uh, but, you know, we tried to navigate it as well as we could. I mean, part of our challenge was that we manage a lot of money for cash flow, for income, for yield. And the pipelines are and have been the stars in that, that regard for a long, long time. But we did get to our lowest weighting ever on MLPs in 2014, kind of mid-2014, and we cut out most of our other energy holdings, but it still hurt. It was a rough rough period of time, kind of that 2014 to uh, particularly, uh, well, we actually did react pretty well to the COVID situation, as I mentioned, because of the support break, but I think we're in a completely different ballgame when it comes to energy. And obviously what's happened between Russia and Ukraine is, is truly a game changer. The US energy industry, which has been so demonized in, in by, and, and not only by politicians, but by the investment community, where it, I mean, this idea of being uninvestable was not just a Jim Cramer soundbite. It was a reality where so many uh, trillions of dollars basically said energy's off limits because of ESG considerations. 
And as a result, you've had an absolute collapse of CapEx. So spending to develop new resources has, it's just, it looks like a cliff dive. And it is slowly starting to come back, but from a very, very low level. So that's why we think this energy shortage is going to be persistent, just like inflation. And obviously there's a connection between the two. So it's, a, I think for people willing to invest in that, you're going to get very highly rewarded. But I would say it's, it's real volatile and you want to be careful. You don't want to buy into these huge rallies. You want to wait till you get the inevitable pullback. And then I think you can do very well. But it's, it, there's now a recognition that the U.S. energy industry is essential. It's an extremely valuable national asset. And as a result, I think you're going to have a much more benign attitude towards. So I, I think you're going to have a long-term shift of dollars its direction which would be quite a change. How, how, but how do they walk back the political stance that's been taken on energy? Because, they, I mean, they've been so overboard on it for such a long time. Now, how do they walk that back? Is it possible? Well, you see the unbelievable cognitive dissonance going on right now where they're, you know, begging them to increase production. But first you go to Venezuela, right? That makes a lot of sense. And Iran, instead of, you know, even like approving pipelines that could bring oil from Canada and uh, they still make it very, very difficult on U.S. energy producers with various regulations and threatened taxes. And yeah, it's uh, I mean, I think you're going to have to have a regime change in Washington to have a truly supportive policy. And no, this isn't to say that we should just you know ignore environmental impact. I mean, I, I think it makes total sense. Well, I'll throw out a factoid that most Americans aren't aware of. And this is from the EPA's website. U.S. air quality is improved by 75 percent over the last 50 years. And how many Americans know that? Almost none. Now, a lot of that was done because of the shift from coal to natural gas. And, you know, we've done a really good job in this country of moving away from coal. But you look over at Asia and they're building new coal facilities like crazy, not just China, but India, too, and even Japan. And Germany's burning a ton of coal. And you know, how do U.S. voters feel about that long term when they realize, you know, especially states like California, where gasoline six dollars a gallon. And we're being told that we need to move away from the much more efficient fossil fuels to much less efficient renewables. And yet, you know, so much of the rest of the world is going hog wild on coal. I don't think voters are going to tolerate that. And I think in your home country, it'd be interesting. I know you're there right now, but the poor British citizenry and having to be facing in so many cases, you know, like 25% of the population that is basically facing energy poverty right now. I think that's going to become a huge political issue. And for the politicians that recognize that, and certainly Joe Manchin does, he was very clear about that on Saturday night. And he's actually trying to get the Mountain Valley pipeline. It's a natural gas pipeline that's almost completely built, but it's been blocked for years. And he's trying to get that opened. And and that's really where a lot of the opposition to fossil fuels has played out is against pipelines. The idea is if we, if we can stop the pipelines and some of the really extreme environmentalists even advocate blowing up pipelines. Can you believe that? Yeah, and no, they actually, no, I can. Yeah, I can. I mean, unfortunately, it's... it's. There was a, a small part of a pipeline in British Columbia blown up here earlier this year. So that's that's got to be... And that's a relatively easy area to change is to get some of these pipelines that are either uh, close to being built or in some cases they're already flowing, but they've they've turned the oil and gas off and you know get those going again. But I, I do think we need a much more rational approach to energy that you know fossil fuels are essential. So let's focus on tailpipe emissions. I mean, that's how we made an, another big improvement in U.S. air quality is with the catalytic converter. And there are, I mean, why not make the kind of effort in, in improving the capture of emissions at the source rather than uh, trying to go to, you know, build 
thousands of windmills and all these you know, new solar facilities, which create all kinds of, I mean, just the transmission lines alone, you can't just put a windmill out someplace and think it's gonna to get to the grid. You gotta bring it to the grid. And building transmission lines is one of the hardest things you can possibly do these days. So I just think we need a much more rational energy policy. And that's not to say ignore the environment. Uh, I think trying to limit coal is one of the most important things. Burning coal for to produce electricity is one of the most important things the world could do to improve air quality. But I, uh, unfortunately, it's the trend is going the other way right now, and that's pretty heartbreaking. You know, it's funny. We're sitting here talking about um, the advantages of being in energy stocks and how terrible tech is doing, and, and it just reinforces to me how quickly things turn. When they really turn – they turn. And we, we've kind of had some false dawns for a while. You know, last year, the Roaring Twenties was the the big theme, right? That's what everyone was talking about, the Roaring Twenties, which again, you wrote about. You wrote about the Roaring Twenties already. And, and that was the big theme. We're going to live through this another decade of crazy excess and technology stocks are going to go crazy. And it was a fate accompli is really what it was. And here we are, looking at the kind of drawdowns we've seen in tech, looking at people switching and, and moving into energy, energy stocks, how quickly these themes change at, at turning points. Well, absolutely. I mean, for example, if you look at these uh, these midstream entities that we hold, the MLPs, and some are actually not MLPs, some are now uh, traditional S-Corp or C-Corps, but uh, they, they trade as a group and they're up 20% this year. I mean, that's pretty, you know, that's, that's saber bacon, frankly, to be heavily exposed to those guys as well as uh, the gold miners. But um, you're right. I mean, I, I think there is a complete change that's underway and there's so much money that can get reallocated pretty quickly. And a lot of these areas aren't that big. So it doesn't take very much money to move, have a, a very pronounced effect on their, their market valuation. But when you brought up the Roaring Twenties, you're right. I have written about this. I've spoken on this and I, you know, I got into a debate. I mean, Ed Giardini was one of the real proponents of that. I think he's kind of backed away from that. But my view was the only thing that was going to roar this decade was inflation. And I think so far that's being vindicated. And again, it gets back to my reasoning that there's two major drivers of inflation. There's more than just two, but the, the two biggies, I think, are MMT. And, and I think that's the, the repercussions of that are going to impact the economy and, and the price level for years, because you know, that money is still out there. And I mean, I know the Fed's going to try to drain some of it. We'll see how far they get on that one, too. But And then this greenflation thing, the green, even Larry, Larry Fink, who's very politically correct, has said the transition is going to be inflationary. The other thing he said that I think it's real significant. And my partner, Louis Gobb, is on this all the time is deglobalization. And that's another lasting trend. And it just, let's face it, I mean, there's no way that's not going to raise prices on a sustained basis. So let me ask you, amidst all this, you're someone who can always find something positive to, to, to look at, to invest in. Do you see any positives out there right now? Absolutely. And part of it is that I think a lot of stocks are already discounting a recession. I mean, you look at a company like FedEx trading at 10 times earnings or some of the home builders that have had just massive declines uh, and are trading at three or four times earnings. I know this can be a value trap. And I was, as you're aware, I mean, what really got me writing my newsletter back in 2005 was the housing bubble at that time. I really wanted to call it out. And that's what I consider to be bubble 2.0. First one being, of course, tech. But there's a big difference with housing today versus housing then. At that time, there was tremendous overbuilding and there was a glut of new homes. This time, there's actually a deficit of new homes. Now, that's not to say home prices aren't going to correct. I think they need to come down 10 to 15%. But the home builders themselves should do pretty well. I mean, the lower prices, they can, you know, their costs will come down for one thing. Uh, but I think demand will pick up. You know, you said a very important thing earlier about that uh, vehicle you were looking at Australia. 
and the, how the auto salesman guys were you know, playing dice. And that's, that's why I think there, this is again, under the heading of potential positive news is that later this year, we could see a tremendous rebound in those parts of the economy. So for example, in the US, the auto industry has been in a volume recession. Not a, They're making money for exactly the reason that you mentioned, because they're able to sell the cars for so much money. So even though they're only at 11 to 12 million units sales, which is typically a very deep recession, they're making money. But volumes are way, way down. And we know all the reasons, semiconductors, et cetera. But I think a lot of people are just saying, I don't want to buy a car right now. I want to wait till the prices come down. Once that happens, I think you could get a, a really nice pop in the economy and, and a more organic versus artificial with government stimulus type of recovery. So I think that's a, that's a definite positive. And it's not just housing or, uh, or cars, but if you look at basically all the, uh, the consumer surveys of buying conditions for large household goods, they're lower than they were in the Great Recession. And uh, I know this is kind of controversial, but I, I don't think there's any doubt. I sent you a chart on this uh, also right before we start recording, but I still think there's about two and a half trillion of excess savings that's built up since the pandemic. Now you can say, well, it's, it's a lot of those are the higher, higher income people that hold it, but that money is still out there. The other thing I would say is that I think the U.S. is pretty uniquely and positively positioned for this new world disorder, I would call it, because we are, you know, the arsenal of democracy, for better or for worse, and our defense industry is pretty much peerless. And we are the breadbasket of the world. Our U.S. agricultural sector, along with Canada, is terrific and prolific. And we're now the leading, as I said earlier, the leading natural gas exporter. So we've got some real inherent advantage. The other thing that is going on, which I don't think is getting enough attention, and I think it was one of your guests, I think it was Peter Zahan, who was talking about how the U.S. is reindustrializing at a rate that's even that even exceeds World War II. So if you think about companies that benefit from capital spending, because it's going to, there's going to be a lot of capital spending that goes on to build out the U.S. industrial sector to, to revive it. I mean, we spent 40 years offshoring our manufacturing capabilities. Now we're bringing it back to the United States, which again, I think is inflationary, but it's going to be good for companies that are positioned properly. And, and in that area, I think semiconductor equipment companies, because it's clear that countries view semiconductors as a strategic asset, a strategic need these days. They're essential. So every country wants to have its own semiconductor production capability. So I think uh, that's a really good area to focus on. And those have come down pretty hard in this uh, market correction, heading into bear market, in my opinion. But I do think it's whatever, it doesn't matter what I say positively on anything, I would only buy a partial position right now. I, I, I think that the overall, I agree with Luke Groman, who's been writing lately that this is one of the most perilous times he's ever seen in his career. And Paul Tudor Jones was just on the, the news wires here recently saying, be very, very careful. This looks like a terrible setup. So, you know, I, yeah, I think there's definitely things to be bullish on, but be careful, be a sober bull. You, you've, that, that's a whole world of hurt all of its own. You talked about your book, you've talked about the newsletter. Talk a little bit about the haymaker and this move you've made to, to writing that. Well, you were kind of instrumental in that too, because uh, for years we had it as the Evergreen Virtual Advisor, Eva, that started in 2005, as I said in my attack on housing back at that time. Uh, but thanks to our mutual friend, Duberg, uh, we are relaunching and rebranding that as Haymaker. And I've got the, the boxing gloves and the whole idea is that I, I like to attack things that don't make sense, whether it's Jim Cramer or you know, Jay Powell or some politician and or just the way the market is behaving. Uh, so it's it's meant to be you know a little bit controversial, 
but realistically controversial. And we're not trying to pick fights over nothing. We're trying to pick fights over things that really matter. And we think that there's a there's truly a, a misconception, misperception uh, that's being dominant, and uh, it's going to hurt people. And I mean, just one example are these meme stocks. I mean, and you know, our friend Dumi has gone after AMC, which you know, back in March, AMC went up over 100 percent on the news of that crazy gold mine deal that they did. Hike rock off, yeah. Bankrupt, multiple bankrupt gold mine. Here you got a movie chain theater buying a gold mine, but it got the stock up over 100% in a, in a few weeks. And GameStop went up just as much for you know whatever bizarre reason. I think it was an insider buying in that case. And they've just been crushed once again. And it's like, so I've written against those guys repeatedly ever since they went absolutely vertical. And you had people like Mark Cuban cheering him on and Elon Musk cheering him on. And it's like, come on, you're, you're doing these people a terrible disservice. They're just going to get hung out to dry. And, and of course they did. And it's like, well, these people never learn. So my point is we're, I try to be very vocal about things that I think are really, uh, you know, travesty that are, we're, we're basically unsophisticated investors are going to get absolutely taken to the cleaners. And so if we can be a source of reason and, you know, a lot of times the idiot behavior gets rewarded initially, we've seen that all too many times, of course, but eventually when you do that kind of thing, like GameStop going from five to 485, you're just going to get crushed. So again, we're going to try. We're going to try to defend the little guy as much as we can. Yeah, yeah it's funny that the the, the, the GameStop thing is a perfect example, right? It, how many people bought it at five and sold it at four hundred eighty-five? Right? Nobody. I mean, nobody did that. But there are plenty of people who bought it at you know four hundred, saw it up to four eighty-five, and were going to hodl it forever, and then find themselves back down at you know twenty-five again. Precisely. You know, you're right. And the thing that there was real money lost because these guys did sell a lot of stock. As they, they, you know, from the, I guess the stability of their company, they probably should have. But when they did those capital raises at those high prices, I mean, there was it wasn't just like a, a marginal trade, you know, for a hundred shares at a high price. There were billions of dollars that went into those things, that, and, and you know, at that price, they just got annihilated. So it was really, it, but that gets back to what I was saying earlier: peak insanity. That was. I don't think we're ever going to see a, a period like last year again. I mean, that's when we had Dogecoin go to 88 billion, which you know, to, and unlike the pumpers and dumpers behind the meme stocks, the, the founder, Billy Marcus, was very honest. He said, this is a joke. It's not worth anything. But it got up to more of a market cap than a lot of US blue chips. I mean, just then we had SPACs and MF, NFTs and it was it was truly peak insanity. So anyway, if, if we can be uh, you know a, a counterbalance to the nonsense that goes on and uh, the kind of cheerleading that you get, including on CNBC when prices are going vertical. So we actually, uh, we're going to be active on Substack. And uh, so if you want to track Haymaker, it's haymaker.substack.com. And then uh, we also are really getting much more involved with Twitter, which is something I really haven't done in my career. My joke was Garbo tweets. So twitter.com, haymaker underscore zero. So just to repeat that, haymaker underscore zero. I'm sorry for the underscore zero part, but that's just the way it is. Yeah, that, I guess that haymaker was taken years ago. Yeah, I would imagine so. I wanted to thank you for this because if it wasn't for you, I never would have met Doomberg. And Doomberg has been so gracious and helpful in this whole conversion process, giving us so many great pointers. And you know, he puts out some excellent stuff. In fact, he, did you see his piece on soybeans? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tremendous. He just wrote one on soybeans. And there's another great example. If you were looking at the chart of soybeans, it had a spectacular breakout in late 2020 and since then it's just gone vertical so that's it for your 
people listening to this thing, I can't reiterate enough the importance of these trading ranges that, that are violated one way or the other, and, or as Paul Tudor Jones calls them, the range expansions. It's the most important. And I'll tell you another reason why I believe it so much, my own personal short account, because as you know, I have a big, long short account that I do. We don't do short <laughs> for clients. And I have so many times I've ignored that rule before I really decided this was a cardinal rule. And virtually every time a stock would break out above the, the multi-year end, I said, oh, well, it's so expensive. I don't care. I'm going to just, I'll just hang in there regardless. I have paid a huge price for it. So believe me, this is a lesson I've learned a very hard and expensive way. So I'm not saying this globally by any means. No, the best lessons are always the most expensive ones. Well, mate, listen. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. It's, it's always so great to talk to you you know i've missed seeing you guys hopefully we'll do that again soon but uh in the meantime listen i I thank you for taking the time to do this with me and thanks for all your your thoughts and uh thanks for the the substack it's uh, i've been reading it so far it's been fantastic and hopefully we'll uh we'll end up with a few more subscribers for you after this oh i'm sure we will thank you so much grant it's always great to talk to you all right mate. take care of yourself hope to see you in person soon okay bye -bye. take care bye well, there you have it. As I said, David's a dear friend. I, I love every chance I get to talk to him, and uh, and this was no exception. I'm, I'm delighted that you guys got to listen into that as well. That's all from me for another podcast. As David said, you can follow him, his new Substack, haymaker.substack.com. You can follow him on Twitter at haymaker underscore zero, um, and I would earnestly encourage you to do that. Um, he's a great thinker and a lovely guy, and if you've got any questions about anything he writes, I know he'll be very responsive, so drop him an email and uh, ask him your questions. That's it from me. I'll be back again with another podcast soon. In the meantime, thank you all so much for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.